Hey, folks, welcome to episode eight of the Speaking of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Robin Ellingwood, and on today's show, I have the pleasure of talking to J.R. Briggs. J.R. is an author, leadership coach, speaker, professor, and equipper. He is the founder of Kairos Partnerships, an organization serving leaders through coaching, consulting, speaking, teaching, equipping, and writing. He also serves as the Director of Leadership and Congregational Formation for the Ecclesia Network. He's a national trainer and strategist for Fresh Expression U.S., and he teaches as an affiliate professor in the Practical Theology Department at Missio Seminary. J.R. and his wife Megan live in the greater Philadelphia area with their two sons. During my conversation with J.R., we talk about failure in leadership. J.R. shares about his leadership journey, lessons he's learned from Eugene Peterson, responding healthily to failure, restorative practices, and a preview of his new book, The Sacred Overlap. This episode is packed full of leadership wisdom and pastoral advice. I think it's going to be helpful to so many leaders who have or will experience failure. So without further delay, here's my conversation with my friend and leadership coach, J.R. Briggs. All right. Well, hey, JR. Thank you so much um, for joining us today and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Robin. It's it's a joy to be with you. Right on, man. Um, listen, I know a bit about you, uh, but I'm wondering uh, maybe if you could tell folks who aren't familiar with your story, maybe you could share a little bit about yourself and about your journey as a leader. Sure. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, had a wonderful home experience, home life, and I've always felt that leadership was what God was calling me to, even at a young age. I just had several leaders kind of draw that out of me and name that, which I'm so grateful for. Uh, deeply marked by my parents, my dad, uh, and his leadership, I had great youth pastors, uh, mentors along the way. Um, and just always felt that ministry would be in my future. I'm kind of that weird kid that um, I knew that I'd be in ministry in sixth grade. <laughs> and it wasn't this these like hallelujah, you know, hallelujah chorus and the angels. It was just this thing of saying, this is really important. And I want to devote my life to something that's this important. And so um, my wife and I met at Taylor University, a Christian college in Indiana, and uh, knew we'd go into ministry, but actually spent some time in publishing out in Colorado Springs for a while. Okay. And, uh, and then went uh, into ministry with a large church running their 20-somethings ministry in Colorado, and then have been here in the Philadelphia area as a church planter. And now starting, I've started an organization that serves leaders all over, uh, all over the, the country and, uh, and even beyond. So that's a little bit about me. Amazing, man. You had a, a really cool connection to Eugene Peterson. I mean, so many of us just appreciated Eugene so much and knew him through his writings. But, but your relationship went a little bit beyond just reading a book uh, that he wrote. And so I'm just wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you met and maybe, maybe a couple key leadership lessons that you learned from him. Yeah, as I mentioned, my first job out of college was uh, working in publishing. I, my wife and I both worked for a publishing company called Nav Press, and Nav Press was part of the Navigators Ministry. It was a small publisher, but had acquired the rights to publish the message translation. And uh, I had read in college, you know, sort of my ministry track, a lot of Eugene's pastoral works. And here we were. A lot of people didn't know at Nav Press who Eugene Peterson was uh, prior to the message. Yeah. We worked on it for 10 years, and it just so happened to be that when my wife and I were there just for two years after college, 
and working in the sales department that um, that the full message Bible was coming out. He had been working on it for years and had finally released. And I was so enamored by him and and not just the translation, but his pastoral life and work at that point mm-hmm. that they they were hosting a message release party. So they invited everyone in the publishing world together and Eugene and his wife, Jan, and his agent and um, just everybody who was everybody was there. And uh, a couple months in advance, Nav Press sent an email out to employees and said, if you'd like to be a part of the message release launch party to help. Uh, show up, brag, grab a lunch, and uh, meet us in conference room B. And I said, "Great!" You know, I expected there'd be you know two dozen people that showed up. There were two quiet female editors and myself that showed up. What? And uh, the editor that was tasked to to do this, she said, "The first thing on the agenda is deciding who will MC the event." <laughs> and both of those quiet women just they they just darted and looked straight at me, and I said. Yeah, sure. I'll do it. 23 years old. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. And uh, so I got to host the Eugene Peterson message release party. And uh, one of the privileges I had was introducing Bono, who wanted to say some messages, kind of like a video message to uh, to Eugene. But it was in the midst of that uh, hosting that afterwards I said, Eugene, I know we're here to celebrate the message, but I want you to know your pastoral works have just shaped me immensely. Mm-hmm. And I said, I have many additional questions. Um, about ministry, can I ask them of you? And he wrote down his address and he handed me a slip of paper and he said, if you write me a letter, I will always write you back. Wow. And true to his word for the rest of his life, every time I would write a letter, a few weeks later, I would receive a reply. Not, not an email. Not It was a straight old like type out a letter, put a stamp on it, mail it. And it was like Christmas day. Every time I get a letter from Eugene, and he'd recommend new books to read, and he'd challenge me with this or that. And so we, we developed this pen pal relationship. So if our house ever burns down, I'm going to get our the baby books, the, the wedding book, and the Eugene Peterson file of letters. I mean, it's just <laughs> no really, kidding, man. It's, uh, but, but they, and then after a while, one day he and his wife, Jan, invited me to their home in Lakeside, Montana, and said, why don't you come up for a few days? And so- hmm just rich time eating and telling stories and going for walks and hikes together. It was just wonderful. And what was so wonderful about it is we revere him so much and rightfully so, but we also, I also got to see the humanity, you know, just to see the, you know, see him folding laundry and, you know, he and Jane, uh, Jan appropriately just kind of, you know, squabbling like married couples do. And I I just, that was really important for me to see the human side of Eugene Peterson. But um, but he taught me so many lessons. In fact, nobody has marked me more in ministry than Eugene Peterson, and I'm very deeply grateful for that. But um, the main thing that I take away from Eugene, and I find myself always returning back to this, is I remember on that visit, we went on a hike around Flathead Lake where they live, and I said, Eugene, what is ministry? It just sometimes gets so complicated. Like, What is ministry? Mm-hmm. And he just, you know, he had a very gruff vo- voice. He he wasn't a smoker, but he had these benign nodes that kind of ended up on his vocal cords. So it sounded like he was a smoker. Right. But uh, but he just, I just remember him turning to me and saying, "JR, ministry is paying attention to God and responding appropriately." And I just have always found that to be such a helpful definition: pay attention to God and respond appropriately. He said, "Just always help your people." pay attention to God and help them respond appropriately, which means that you are the person that you must first always be putting your life in a posture that pays attention to God 
and responds appropriately. So that's, that's the main one. And I find when I get confused and things are complicated and overwhelming, I say, what am I supposed to be doing? I don't even, oh yeah, that's right. Eugene would say in this moment, pay attention to God and respond appropriately. Um, but he also really uh, helped me understand Sabbath. He beat that into my head that you must practice Sabbath if you're going to be healthy, if you're going to enter in, you know, learn the unforced rhythms of grace as he interpreted that passage in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Mm-hmm. And the way we learn to live the unforced rhythms of grace is practicing Sabbath as a non-negotiable, not as legalism, but as a real uh, invitation and rhythm of life and flourishing in the kingdom. Um, He also taught me that consumerism is prevalent, it's sneaky, and it's one of the greatest threats to ministry. And that, unfortunately, if we have a consumeristic mindset, there's so many temptations that can bring pastors down. They're so subtle, but the gimmicky approach to ministry just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And he helped me realize over the long haul um, that ministry doesn't always make the headlines, but to be rooted in your identity in Christ is crucial to all that we do. And if not, it will ruin us. And I have just always appreciated the idea of rhythms, rest, Sabbath, um, not living and um, not feeding into the consumeristic beast that uh, the church machine is often built on in North America today. Wow, man. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing those. Yeah, it's a joy. A few years ago, you wrote a book uh, with a really amazing title called Fail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, who writes a book with the title Fail, right? (laughs) I love it, man. I would really love for us maybe to take some time to, to talk about failure, because failure is something that all leaders will experience at one time or another. And so a few years ago, you wrote this book, Fail. The subtitle um, is Finding Hope and Grace in the Midst of Ministry Failure. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe tell us what was the impetus uh, for that book? Yeah. Yeah, much of this book came out of my own brokenness and my own pain through a very wounding ministry season uh, in my late 20s. And uh, in the midst of that really wounding experience, I had nowhere that I could go that was safe to process what I was feeling. Um, but began, I began to start to see a Christian counselor who really helped me understand and see the inner journey as being something to be embraced rather than to be rejected. And I was looking so quickly, how can I fix this? How do I fix the pain? How do I fix the problem, fix the failure? And it wasn't until I was able to just let go of it and not see it as like, this isn't like some how-to manual. This was something you just enter into and embrace and allow the spirit to work in the midst of those cracks and those crevices. Everything felt like it had been stripped from us, my wife and I, and we felt at the bottom uh, having to start over in many ways and just wrestling with fear of how are we going to pay the bills, um, wrestling with my own selfish um, fear of obscurity and of loneliness and being massively misunderstood Mm. um, in the midst of this. And so I was at war with God through the process, never wanting to walk away from him. Um, But I wondered why ministry and leadership and even life itself had to be so painful. And so it was, uh, my prayers were quite rated R in that season. Right. Um, I'm really just wrestling through that. And so so a few years into my healing, um, I came up with... uh, quite by accident, 
to host a conference called the Epic Fail Pastors Conference in my own hometown. And the reason being is everywhere I looked, there were ministry conferences, but they always had the really successful, really large uh, pastor up on the stage. And you walked away feeling either really lousy because you compared yourself and said, I'll never be that up on stage, that person and what they're doing. Or it just felt irrelevant because it's like they're opening their seventh campus right now. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what do we do with our like babies in childcare, you know, within with the nursery? Right. And it just there was just a massive disconnect. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of flipped it and just a total joke when I had a blog, when blogs were a thing, a thing back then. And I just said, well, what if we had the epic fail pastors conference where no one on stage was allowed to have a church of more than 200 and he couldn't wrap it up in a nice pretty bow. Oh, this happened to me. And now everything's amazing and God's great. Uh, but we we didn't record it. We didn't hand out swag. We didn't have a green room. We, there was no smoke and lights machine. And it was, we, we hosted it here on the north side of Philadelphia um, in an old abandoned church. It was a, actually a really seedy bar, but it was the first church in my community, but it failed and was turned into the Elks Club and then eventually a bar. And we thought there's no better place for us to host a place like this than in our community's oldest church that failed. And uh, amazing, we hosted it for a few years. We 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 realized we had struck a chord because the the post went viral, and we had people from all over the world. We had people from Australia that came and joined us for that event, and uh, we hosted it for a few years, and then realized that maybe a book would help those that it was even too scary to come to a conference to talk about such a painful thing like ministry failure. And uh, so that's that's kind of how the book came out uh, from this Epic Fail Pastors Conference. Wow. In the book, you talk about the failure, rejection, shame process. Um, and I'm wondering if you could maybe share a little bit about that and then talk about the um, third way of responding to failure that you flesh out. Yeah, I mean, this concept has been one of the concepts, if not the the most uh, that readers, when they respond to me, say that it was most helpful from the book. So when I started going to my to my Christian counselor, to my therapist, and I I just knew I needed to untangle some of these lies and some of these hurts because um, I couldn't do it on my own. Um, I sat down in his office, plopped down on the couch, and said, "My greatest fear in life is failure." And so we talked about that for a few weeks, and then after a few weeks, I went back in and I said, "You know what? I was wrong. I think my greatest fear in life is rejection that happens from people after I've failed." And he said, "Okay." And so we talked about that for a few more weeks. And then after that, I came in, I said, I was wrong again. <laughs> My greatest fear in life is shame that happens when I'm rejected after I fail. Wow. And he, I remember he leaned in and he pointed to me and he said, now we're getting somewhere. Now we can begin. Hmm. And, uh, and so it was really peeling back the layers of, of shame on that. But I just realized that, that all of us have that failure, rejection, shame train, and they're all connected cars on the tracks. And so what happens when I fail? And I said, okay, failure, rejection, shame, where's the gospel in this? Where's the good news of Jesus if we all experience this? Well, despite what late night religious television uh, tells us, it's, it's Jesus does not keep us from failure, mm -hmm. right? Theologically, biblically, we read that actually Jesus says, don't be surprised when it happens and expect more of it. Right. So, okay, so the gospel doesn't intercept failure. Well, what happens when we are rejected? And so that's where, you know, sort of psychologists tell us there's the fight or flight response. 
Some would even say fight, flight, or freeze, right? We just don't know what to do, and we just lock up. Mm-hmm. But I said, where's the gospel in this? We don't want to fight back. We don't want to retreat. What does it mean to remain in? And so gospel invitation there in the midst of that that failure and that rejection is yield. And we don't like the word submit in our culture today, but but yield, every time I see a yield sign when I'm driving, I'm basically putting my foot on the brake and saying someone else has the right of way in my life because that's better for them and for me. Mm-hmm. And so I just realized that when I yield to God and his kingdom, that when I put the the brake on the foot on the brake of my life, I'm basically yielding saying someone else has the right of way. And I just realized that there was so much control that I wanted that yielding was the only way that I could move forward from from fear into freedom. And so I realized if the yielding is really there and I trust Jesus at what he says, then that rejection, others may reject me, but really the, the, the God of the universe, the king who also claims to be my father, moves from rejection to actually, if I hear it well, that there's acceptance there. And instead of shame, that there's actually honor. Not in an arrogant way, like, hey, look at me, I'm honored by the king, but in a true identity that roots me uh, as the beloved child of God. And that concept of seeing failure, rejection, shame, when the failure happens to be intercepted, not by fight or flight, but by yielding to God, of seeing my rejection turned inside out and turned to acceptance, and the shame turned inside out into honor, was, was a freeing experience for me and, uh, and has been for many others. I found that so helpful, that part in your book. So yeah, really appreciate that insight. So good. Mm. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about the allure of success and what a more biblical definition of success looks like for Christian leaders or for ministry leaders. Yeah, it's, I'm really glad you're asking this, Robin, because, because unfortunately, we worship the golden calf of, uh, of success in our North American context. And this is this allure, and that's the right word. The allure is always there. And oftentimes, uh, it can be wrapped in very spiritual language, so it doesn't feel so idolatrous, but you peel back the motivations behind that spiritual language that's been baptized, uh, it actually isn't as pretty as we think it is. And so, uh, unfortunately, and this has been said before by many others, that most churches are evaluated by the three Bs, buildings, bodies, and budget. And if those three Bs are up, you have a big building campaign, you have, you know, 30% attendance increase, your budget is increased from last year, you're a quote-unquote successful church. And I'm going to continue to use air quotes here because uh, I, that word success is, is a little hard sometimes to swallow when we're talking about the kingdom. Yeah. But, um, but, and again, if those are down, you don't have a building, attendance is down, budget is down, those are, those are all ways that we say, oh, you know, you're, you're a failure. Um, what's interesting is if we use that same metric, of the three Bs of buildings, bodies, and budget, and we use that metric to evaluate Jesus, then Jesus was an utter failure. And so we have to be very careful with that, um, those three Bs. So instead, what, what is it? What is the metric by which we should evaluate ourselves? I'm not saying that all those numbers all the time are bad. Where it becomes bad is we only use those as our metric, and we never look beyond, below the surface on that. So instead, in the book, I talk about the three Fs. And I wasn't trying to be a Baptist preacher with alliteration there, but it just happened to fall into that. But the idea of faithfulness, fruitfulness, and fulfillment, that there's a faithfulness, right? Jesus will never say to us at the end of our lives, well done, good and successful servant. 
Right. He he will only say faithful and faithfulness and then fruitfulness. John 15, one through eight, right? That we bear fruit, that we bear much fruit, that we bear much fruit that lasts. And so that by our fruit, by the way in which the evidence, the fruit of the spirit, uh, Paul talks about as well uh, in Ephesians or in Galatians. And so um, those those are really important that we think through. And then fulfillment, that the deep down, even though the results of quote unquote success may not be there, that there's a fulfillment knowing when I am faithful to what Jesus is asking me to do, and there's fruit in my life and the lives of others, that we can just live with this sense of holy satisfaction that we're following the God of the universe of exactly what he's called us to do. Whether we are entrusted with one, two, or five talents, but that we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and that fulfillment that we have in there. Now, I was uh, teaching a master's class in the Midwest a few years ago, and someone raised their hand and said, I think there should be another F, uh, fellowship, not just fellowship with God the Father, but also uh, fellowship with others, that we live in community with others. And I said, where were you when I was writing the book? That's terrific. (laughs) So if there's another edition that ever comes out, I would add a fourth F, and that word fellowship is a little churchy, but fellowship with God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, this Trinitarian unity and relationship with, with the Trinity, but, but also the community that comes with others that, uh, that we can enter into. So, you know, there's, there's temptations, Robin, are just always there. That there's a certain magazine, which I won't say uh, their name, but the Christian magazine, every year they, they always have their like, fastest growing churches in America issue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and they're just promoting the three B's concept yeah. over and over again. And that's, again, what Eugene was talking about, the consumerism approach, bigger, better, faster. Uh, and to say that's, that's, that doesn't smell a lot like Jesus or the kingdom in what we're doing. In fact, Jesus talked a lot about the smallness of the kingdom. By the way, I'm not saying that big churches are bad, not at all. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes we have to be careful about our motivations for wanting a quote unquote bigger church. Yeah. Um, and so I think it sometimes can be a sin for, um, wanting to stay small because <laughs> there could be a protective self-preservation element to it. Um, but of saying, Lord, this is yours, but he's going to evaluate us not by buildings, bodies, and budget, but by fruitfulness, faithfulness, fulfillment, and fellowship with him and with others. Love it. Okay. So, so you fleshed out the four F's kind of this new metric or new definition of success. And I wonder if maybe for people who aren't ministry leaders, but, but they're followers of Jesus, or maybe they're not even, they wouldn't identify themselves as Christians. They might say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's all good for a ministry leader or for a pastor or whatever, but I'm not a pastor. I'm not in ministry and I have employers or I work in an industry that has a more traditional way of measuring success. So what would you say to them? How, how might yeah, that apply to them? It's a great question. And I'll say this, that those who have read the book who are non-ministry related have said to me, you need to host the Epic Fail People's Conference <laughs> because this isn't limited just to pastors. Yeah. Uh, and I agree. And we've, we've toyed with that as a possibility. Um, and so, yeah, but many non-ministry people have read the book and said, man, this was really helpful. Most of these principles apply to my own life. And I hope that's, that's to be true. Obviously, I wrote it through the lens of the ministry uh, perspective. But yeah, a lot of this is just on the primal level of like our own identity and who we are. Yeah. It's a great question because what happens if we're not, you know, it's not like we can say, well, we don't care about the budget and who cares? And, you know, I don't think I'm going to work this week. And right. I mean, that's, that's not helpful. 
it would the analogy I use in the book is as if you went into the doctor and you weren't feeling well, and the doctor took you know the nurse took your your weight and your height and your blood pressure and took your temperature and all that, and then basically came back and said, "Okay, you're good to go." We looked at all your numbers and they're good. And you go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I, I'm I'm sick. I I've got this cough and these chills and my my throat hurts." And um, they said, "No, no, your numbers check out fine." That would be wrong. Right. But what we do is we take those numbers, but also we wait in the, the room. And when the doctor comes in, what does the doctor do? The doctor then asks other questions like, tell me your story as in, how are you feeling? How long have you been feeling this way? Mm-hmm. They actually then look in your throat and check your lymph nodes. And, and you know, all those are important. And we've got to take the qualitative and the quantitative and bring them together. So in no way am I saying just all numbers are bad, disregard them. Yep. Again, when we use only numbers to evaluate health, that's the problem. And, uh, and that's the thing. I think instead of growth, we should be focusing on health because the mm-hmm. byproduct of health is growth. And the problem is, is that oftentimes we focus on growth and what happens is a lack of health. Right. And so if we're just trying to get bigger uh, for the sake of getting bigger, we can become very, very unhealthy. So I always stress whatever industry you're in, whatever field you're in, focus on health because healthy things grow and actually healthy things reproduce as well when there's healthy maturation. Um, and that can be translated among among any field in any context or sector or industry. Great. In the book, uh, you also write, failure is a beautiful gift wrapped in an ugly package. Talk to us a little bit about how failure can be a gift leaders. Yeah. I think that when we grow in our maturity, it's when we move from seeing failure as a curse to seeing it as a potential blessing in our lives. Mm -hmm. I don't want to sound like a Hallmark card here in saying this. I don't want this to sound like mushy sentimentality. Failure and setback and shame and rejection is awful. It's a scary, harrowing, lonely place. But we grow the most when not just when we're wounded, but when we steward our wounds well, not just when we fail, but when we learn in the midst of that. And so in the Christian story, it's where grace shines. If everything is flourishing and there are no setbacks or failures or wounds or rejection, where do we need Christ in that? And so our failure actually reminds us, forces us to see that grace is not a theological abstract concept in our heads but instead is a true-to-life reality that runs wild in our bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And when we're, we, we say, you know, as Paul said, when we are weak, he's strong. That's just not a verse we memorize at Vacation Bible School. It becomes the biography of our own spiritual journey when we're growing in our maturity to see that, that failure is not a, not a curse here. Uh, if we're willing to see it as a blessing, it's amazing what it can teach us. Yeah, You know, in the scriptures, God does some of his best work in the wilderness with people. Mm-hmm. And we really, I, I want to encourage people, uh, those of you who are on a, your faith journey with, with Christ, do a study on the wilderness and where God shows up. Some of his most transformative work in leaders' lives happens in the midst of the wilderness. And I think there's much for us to learn today, and those implications remain. What is the way forward for leaders um, who've experienced failure? And just wondering maybe also if you could speak to the rhythms or practices that might help leaders on this journey of just moving forward from failure. 
Yeah, one of the one of the later chapters in the book, I, I talk about the three primary categories for leaders in how we respond to failure healthily, and if I can say it, how we respond to failure successfully. Um, how do we fall forward, as it's been said? And so those three categories are relationships and support, uh, recalibration and realignment, and rediscovering rest and joy. All three of those are important. And again. And this is mostly for kingdom leaders or pastors, but this can work for any sort of leader. Mm-hmm. Um, but under the relationship and support uh, category, securing a mentor or a coach or a spiritual director, uh, being a part of a small group that you do not have to lead yourself. I think that's really important that you're not the leader yeah. in a small group for your own healing. Um, to find a trusted counselor like I did, uh, developing uh, friends who don't need you. I think what what pastors and a lot of Christian leaders need they need people who don't need them. And I think that's very, very important. In the recalibration and realignment, some rhythms would be uh, just, and Eugene Peterson taught me this, just give up reading how-to ministry books, especially in that season where you're trying to recover and um, heal from a time of failure. Just give up all those how-to ministry books, mm-hmm. uh, at least for the season. Um, to journal just raw and honest prayers. I love hanging out in the Psalms because they give us permission to pray those rated R prayers. Yeah. The truth is, if I tweeted some of the prayers that David wrote, uh, like you and me, we'd be fired. And yet this is the same guy that God called a man after his own heart. Right. So trying to wrestle with that is a really interesting thing. But even just giving permission to just let it out, um, Cry, weep, yell, appropriately emote uh, is important. We just think Christianly like, oh, I shouldn't show emotion. I shouldn't be upset. I shouldn't. And yet there are really important things to do in that. I think I put this in the book, but one Epic Fail Pastors event we hosted in Cincinnati, there was, there was one gentleman who said, uh, you know what I do? And I said, what? He said, I go to the thrift store and I buy a whole stack of cheap plates for five bucks. And he said, and when my family is away, I go down in my basement, I put on goggles and I throw these plates against the wall as hard as I can against the center block walls. And he said, when I'm all done, I sweep them up, throw them in the trash and feel amazing. Wow. And uh, I wouldn't recommend that for everybody, but he said it was a very spiritual experience. This guy was like 70 years old. And he said it was a very spiritual experience. He said, I'd get done and say, okay, God, let's get to work. I'll be faithful. Let's do this. And that was his way to emote. Incredible. Um, And then in the rediscovering rest and joy, I mentioned Eugene teaching me to practice Sabbath. I think I've never met a burned out pastor who practiced Sabbath regularly. Mm -hmm. So I think practicing Sabbath, engaging in life giving activities, and then also just getting out of the zip code. We just need times where we can just kind of leave our own context for a little bit. We just have greater perspective when we're just able to get out of our out of our region to just have a little bit more perspective and sit down with a, a journal or go for a walk or just walk through a park or sit still for a few hours. It just has a way of really helping. Those are so good. You spend a lot of your time helping leaders. It's one of the things that I really love about you. Heck, I mean, you're even my leadership coach. So (laughs) anyway, man, I just, I appreciate you so much personally, but you spend a lot of your time uh, helping, encouraging, resourcing leaders. Just wondering if you could tell us just some of the ways that you're doing that. Tell us about what you're doing at Kairos Partnerships. Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. 
And it is a joy serving as your leadership coach, Robin. You are <laughs> fun to be with and to work with, Thanks, and you're man. growing like crazy, and that encourages me deeply. But one of the things that, you know, because I didn't have anybody with me during the darkest time of my life, I complained about that for years. But after a while, the Lord said, okay, you can complain about it, or I can use you to be to others what you longed for yourself when you were going through it. Wow. And so for me, I'm trying to steward some of that loneliness and um, that harrowing wilderness experience to kind of turn that. And I don't just work with leaders who are having a terrible time, mm -hmm. but I'm just trying to join with Christ in pushing back the darkness. For example, if I'm the evil one and I want to take out a church or an organization or a key leader, I'm not going to go after the little old lady who shows up to church once or twice a month. I'm going to go after the pastor. I'm going to go after the pastor's mind, the pastor's soul, the pastor's health, the pastor's family, and even the relationship the pastor has with the elders. Yeah. And so we just, with our organization, Kairos Partnerships, we just, we just want to help as many tired, worn out, lonely, overwhelmed, stuck, burned out uh, kingdom leaders as they're longing for encouragement, friendship, relationships, tools, perspectives along the way. So we just, that idea of encouraging and cheerleading and just saying, keep going, don't give up. You can do this. Remain faithful to Christ. He hasn't left you. Mm -hmm. Don't don't throw in the towel. And uh, so we always say we're looking for fat and hungry leaders. So it's always kind of weird to say that, but uh, it's an acronym there that we want to see leaders who are faithful, available, and teachable. Not perfect, but they really want to be faithful to God and their calling. They want to be available to what God wants for them. They're teachable in their spirit, and they're hungry to want to grow and learn. So we do that in a variety of ways. Yeah, coaching, consulting, uh, speaking and writing, encouraging, training and equipping. I teach sem a seminary at, at a small seminary here in the Philadelphia area um, and co-host a couple podcasts. So anything we can do to just our team to just be able to equip and serve leaders because the evil one would love for leaders to think you're weird, you're crazy, you're lonely, and you can't call or ask anybody to help you through this process. You got to get it through, get through this by yourself. Mm -hmm. And we're just trying to push back the darkness by joining with Jesus. Um, in Psalm 3, 3, it says, the Lord, he lifts our head. And, um, and that's always stuck with me. And I've really felt the Lord press in on me that part of the role of Kairos Partnerships is to partner with God to help lift the head heads of others uh, whose shoulders are shrunk and whose head is down and just in need of encouragement and confidence and a reminder uh, of why we're doing what we're doing here in ministry. Well, I, I just so appreciate what you guys are doing. It's such a gift to, uh, to leaders and to the kingdom. Mm, well, thank you. You have a new book coming out in September. Uh, wondering maybe if you could give us like just a little sneak peek, a little taste of you know what we can look forward to. What's the big idea behind it, and where can people pre-order it? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. So, yeah, the name of the book is "The Sacred Overlap: Learning to Live Faithfully in the Space Between." Uh, we live as we've experienced the last several months. I've been working on this for the last several years, but it's amazing the timing of all this, that we live in this ever increasingly polarized and divided world. So mm -hmm. how are followers of Jesus supposed to respond in this, where it feels like it's either black or white, Republican or Democrat here in the United States, um, one side or the other? And so we live in this ever divisive world. What's interesting is that we see Jesus and following him as an either or concept. And yes, he does invite us to choose life over death, to choose light over darkness. But However, it's a bit startling to read how often Jesus lived 
in this both and reality. And so if you think about a Venn diagram, I love Venn diagrams. Uh, people can't see it at home, but I love Venn diagrams enough to have a tattoo of a three, <laughs> a three-centered uh, Venn diagram on my arm. But, but what's interesting is that these, these Venn diagrams actually are a good symbol for what and how Jesus lived. So he's described as the lion and the lamb, you know, the alpha and the omega. He's involved in justice and mercy. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners, as well as the religious elite. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told the woman at the well uh, to worship. We're worshiping in spirit and truth. The woman caught in adultery. He, con- he said, I don't condemn you, but go leave your life of sin. So he lives in these kind of overlapped realms. And all of this came about in college. I began thinking through this. There was a, a speaker that I heard at a college retreat one weekend, and he said, when we're living faithfully for Christ, we'll be too pagan for our Christian friends and too Christian for our pagan friends. Wow. And that's always stuck with me, that how do we live in that sacred overlap of those overlapping, you know, Venn diagram, that middle football shape, which is called a mandorla, the Italian word for almond because of its shape. How do we be mandorla people? And we need to learn to embrace the mystery a little bit more and trust the spirit to guide us when we feel like, ah, have I gone a little bit too far? And so navigating this faithful existence as followers of Jesus requires wisdom, courage, and compassion all together. So that's a little bit of the sneak preview of, of the book. And if people are interested in knowing more, uh, the website, uh, thesacredoverlap.com will be live here in just a few weeks. And people can pre-order on, uh, I always recommend Hearts and Minds Bookstore. It's at heartsandmindsbooks.com or, of course, at Amazon as well. Right on. Could you also, just as we wrap up, just let us know where people can find you online, discover more about what you're doing. You mentioned that you host uh, or co-host a couple of podcasts, wondering maybe if you could tell us where those are, the names of them. Sure. Yeah. So I co-host a podcast with my friend Doug called The Monday Morning Pastor to encourage pastors on Monday, which is often the most discouraging day of the week for pastors. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also lead one for kingdom leaders who aren't necessarily in ministry uh, called Resilient Leaders, the Resilient Leaders podcast. Those can be found anywhere that you get your pods. And uh, really, it's a joy to to do that. Uh, um, We release three episodes a week between those two two podcasts. I'm on Twitter, JR underscore Briggs. Uh, Instagram uh, is jrbr.iggs, and uh, also on kairospartnerships.org, K-A-I-R-O-S partnerships.org. And I always love hearing from people, so feel free to drop me a line. My contact information is there. Amazing. Well, JR, thanks again, man, just for your time, just for being so generous uh, with it today. Uh, thanks for the insights that you shared, and I uh, just really wish you the best as you continue to come alongside leaders to cheer them on and resource them as they continue to do good work. So thank you. Wasn't that great? The parts that resonated most with me were the things that JR shared about the allure of success and the need for new metrics and the gospel invitation to us when we experience failure, rejection, and shame. Hey, if you're looking for someone to come alongside of you to help you grow in your leadership, I couldn't recommend JR and the team at Kairos Partnerships more highly. If you're interested in learning more, the link to their website is in the show notes. You can also find links in the show notes for the books that JR and I discussed during the interview and a few of his other books as well. Hey, if you're a new listener, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. I hope you'll subscribe to the Speaking of Leadership podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss out on future episodes. 
If you enjoyed what you heard today, I'd be so grateful if you took a moment to rate the podcast and leave a short review. And if you're a regular listener, I'd love if you considered supporting this podcast by becoming a Speaking of Leadership podcast patron. You can help me continue producing episodes like the one you just listened to for as little as $3 a month. Think of it as a virtual tip jar. The Speaking of Leadership podcast is an independent, listener-supported production, so every donation helps. Visit patreon.com forward slash speaking of leadership for more information. Well, that's all for today. Join me next time when I sit down with author, speaker, and missiologist, Mike Frost. <laughs>